scientists know what a healthy diet is. The nutritional science is very clear. The medical science is very clear. There are certain foods that are characteristic of healthy populations who have longer lives, less cancer, less cardiovascular disease, less type 2 diabetes, healthier populations who have longer, healthier, happier lives. And those foods are fruits and vegetables and whole grains and beans and legumes and nuts and seeds and maybe a little bit of plant-based oil like extra virgin olive oil. We know that. Hello, and welcome to the Natural Healthcare Network podcast. My name is Deb McLeod, and I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in. Today, I am absolutely delighted to say that Dr. Alan Desmond is joining me. He is a gastroenterologist, an author, an optimist, and a science-based, plant-based enthusiast and expert. He joins me today with my co-host, nutritional therapist, Linda Sims, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It is wonderful to have you here with us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Should be fun. So are we. Linda is chomping at the bit to ask you lots of questions. We're here to talk a little bit about your background you know, how you got into uh, more of the plant-based eating side. I've, I've read the intro of your book, which is really fascinating, which we also want to talk about. But just a little bit about your journey and what you're doing now and how, what sort of plans you may have going forward. Now, that's a lot to pack in, but, and questions that Linda's got uh, as well. So if you're happy with that, do you want to just kick off and we can start from there? Is that Yeah. Absolutely, Deb. Well, I'm, uh, uh, well, you said Dr. Alan Desmond, that's my name. I'm a gastroenterologist. So I'm a, I'm a, you know, standard doctor. I work at a hospital. I went to medical school um, in back home in Cork in Ireland for six years. I qualified as a doctor in 2001, decided that I want to be a gut health doctor or gastroenterologist in about 2004. As I mentioned in the book, it takes a long time to become a doctor. So having entered med school in 95 and qualified in 2001, deciding I wanted to be a gastroenterologist in 2004, I eventually became became uh, you know, a senior consultant gastroenterologist in 2012. Um, so since you know, 2004, really, I've been um, reading and learning and being taught uh, about gastrointestinal health and gut health and seeing patients um, with gut health problems and gastrointestinal problems. And uh, how did I end up becoming someone who recommends a whole food plant-based diet? Well, every gastroenterologist will tell you that when they explain a diagnosis to their patient, whether that's Crohn's disease or colitis or diverticular disease or gastroesophageal reflux disease or any of the gut health problems that high-income countries like the UK and the US um, are plagued by in the 21st century, that when you explain these to any patient, you tell them about the diagnosis, the medications, the procedures, the appointments, et cetera, every single patient, almost to a fault, will ask you, what about food, doctor? Are there any mm. foods that I should avoid or any foods that I should eat to help improve my health today, reduce my symptoms and optimize my outcome? And I noticed that very early in my career as a gastroenterologist, that, doc- that patients would ask this all the time. So over the years, as well as reading all the scientific papers and reviews to learn about the best evidence-based medications and procedures, et cetera, et cetera, um, I've also been reading the papers on human health and food because I want to be able to give my patients evidence-based answers to those really, really important questions. People know intuitively that food has a huge role to play in their health and helping them to restore optimal health. And the science is absolutely clear that that assumption is correct. Food really does matter. And looking at the impact that the standard Western diet has on human health Mm. has led me step by step to recommend to my patients, but also to the general public and, you know, to the readers of my book, 
that in order to optimize your gut health and your overall health, you've got to minimize or eliminate the junk foods, which make up 56% of calories consumed in the UK right now. And you've got to dramatically reduce your consumption of animal products, meat, eggs, and dairy. And you need to really up the healthy whole plants. And that's why every single recipe in the book only contains healthy whole plants. Mm. Really nice. Really nice. Do you find, um, because not all GPs weigh about about foods really you know they don't some people just say you can eat whatever you want so how did you and I know you talk about this a bit in your in the introduction but how did you really come to that conclusion was it just through the research or was there something in you the thought no there's something more here there's just got to be well, to be honest, you know, Deb, I was just looking for these answers for my patients. And, you know, uh, uh, patients, for example, with Crohn's disease, um, which is a form of inflammatory bowel disease, will often ask you, why did I get this condition? What foods can I eat to help to reduce flares of this condition? And over the years, I've been reading papers that demonstrate very clearly that with the switch to a standard Western diet, the late 20th and early 21st century, as we increased our intake of meat and dairy, dairy and eggs and all the negative impact that that has on our gut health and our gut microbiome. And we reduced our intake of healthy whole plants and all the positive benefits that they have on our gut microbiome and our gut health. That gastrointestinal diseases like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, diverticular disease, um, even colorectal cancer have become more and more and more common. And although we view them as inevitable in countries where they're really common, there are still populations where they're not very common common at all. And there are even populations within our own high-income countries where these things are not very common at all. And the, uh, the way to avoid these things is to push back against the standard Western diet. Now, to your point that not many doctors are talking about this, I have to say, I think that is changing. That's been true for a long time. But thanks to organizations like the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, in the US. And thanks to work, the work of Dr. Shireen Kazam and the uh, Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, of which I'm a proud founding member and ambassador for, we are the doctors who are familiar with this research and who care about the importance of food in human health are increasing. Yep. And we're working alongside dietetic colleagues, uh, qualified dietitians and nurses and other health professionals to spread the word. And, you know, in my book and in my public speaking, I always advocate a healthy whole food plant based diet, like a really healthy version of a Mediterranean diet, a really healthy version of a vegan diet. But it just so happens, Deb, that this sort of approach to food has in the last 10 years become incredibly popular Mm. has also been endorsed as beneficial to human health by the British Dietetic Association, the American Academy for Nutrition and Dietetics, the Canadian Healthy Eating Guidelines, the national guidelines describe a plant-based approach to food, the American Cancer Society encourage this approach to food, the World Health Organization approach, uh, encourage this approach to food. And last August... The American Medical Association, which is a professional association of doctors, yeah. wrote to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is the group who are responsible for, for commissioning the dietary guidelines for Americans, the official guidelines as to what Americans should eat. So the American Medical Association writes to them because they're updating the dietary guidelines for Americans. And in that letter, the doctors, the AMA, one of the oldest and largest professional organizations for doctors in the world, asks the USDA to stop putting meat and dairy as mandatory food groups within their dietary guidelines. And why? Because they explain in that letter that these food groups are not necessary for human health, so they shouldn't yeah. be classified as mandatory, number one. And number two, they are driving cardiovascular disease, colorectal cancer, and prostate cancer, and other diseases. So they, now, unfortunately, the dietary guidelines for Americans didn't take the advice of those doctors, but it just shows really, it's just to the point that doctors don't talk about this. It is changing, thank goodness. 
And I was going to say that when I was studying nutrition, mm. um, I was reading all the American plant-based doctors, so Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Gregor, you know, and I was thinking, that why don't we have somebody like that here? So it's amazing <laughs> that over the last couple of years that that's really been changing. Yeah. And we have more plant-based doctors. So, so it's you, Dr. Gemma, also, um, Dr. Neetu, you know, so that, that's... Absolutely. But you, but you know, Linda, many of those U.S. doctors were inspired by um, Dr. Dennis Burkett, who was an Irishman from Enniskillen who studied medicine in Dublin, practiced in the UK, World War II, went as a military medic to rural Africa, spent 20 or 30 years working in rural Africa, and then returned to the UK and worked for the British Medical Council. And it was the man responsible for getting the concept of dietary fiber into the medical lexicon. So many of those US doctors were inspired well, inspired by many other doctors and dietitians and advocates, but among the lead voices for this in the 60s and 70s, um, and right up to his death in 1993, was, of course, um, our very own Dr. Dennis Burkett. Brilliant. So it is nice to see that this real transition is actually happening, which is wonderful. And, and I think one of the, if there, you know, there are silver linings with, with COVID, um, and I know you, you have really been in the throngs of, of, of it all, particularly since your ward was a, turned into a COVID ward. But the silver lining is that people are having to start thinking more about how to stay well, but people don't quite know what to do about it. How, what is a healthy plate? What does this mean? And that I should have so many grams and so many grams of that. Whereas I think it's now down to the education part. And it can be so confusing, Debs, because yeah. although, look, if you look at your, your weekend newspaper or you're, you're scrolling online or if you Google up what is a healthy diet, you, you're going to get so many conflicting um, answers, so many different camps, so many uh, different extremes out there. But when you look at the evidence-based dietary guidelines that are out there, and I described this in the book, the Eat Lancet mm -hmm. Report, which was published in 2019, um, the biggest medical journal or one of the oldest, most respected medical journals in the world gets 39 international globally recognized experts on food, human health and food production to go off and look at decades of evidence and to come back with a blueprint for a healthy diet to answer what may be one of the most important questions of the 21st century. What should I eat? Mm. Okay, so they say, look, this is a big question. Here's a, we've got to set up this commission go, go wait, come back, look at all the evidence, come back to us. They come back, um, 2019, they published their paper. Phenomenal paper. The, the, the full text is well, well worth reading. It's like a primer on human health and nutrition. And they recommend a global shift to a diet that is consisted of whole foods and is completely or predominantly plant-based. They ask that people start to consume uh, a food style that your shopping basket would be full of, you know, about half the food should be a variety of fruits and vegetables. About a quarter of your food should be healthy whole grains. So we're talking like whole grain rice and oats and whole grain pasta and whole grain bread. And that the remainder should be made up of healthy plant-based foods that are very high in protein. So your chickpeas and lentils, uh, split peas, et cetera, your legumes, with a little bit of added oils, which would be healthy plant-based oils, like extra virgin olive oil. Mm. They were very clear that having examined the evidence on food and health with no particular agenda, other than improving the health of the planet and the people living on it, that meat, eggs, and dairy should be regarded as optional. And if you live in a country where you are lucky enough to have pretty much unlimited food choices, then plants will always remain the healthier option. And if you are gonna consume animal products, they recommend it sticking to very small amounts. For example, about 30 grams of chicken or fish per day, about half an egg, per day, or an average, average of seven grams of red meat per day. And if you're consuming more than that, the evidence suggests you're going to have a negative impact on your health. Now, when they wrote that paper and published it, and all the resources that go with it, they, you know, the, the 
the resources that exist there alongside the Lancet report are phenomenal, but they predicted then, you mentioned COVID-19 a few minutes ago, this is a year before the COVID pandemic, they estimated then that if we could flick a switch and get the whole world to eat like I just described, we would prevent almost 12 million completely preventable deaths per year, not to mention hundreds of millions of fewer coronary stents and bypasses and prescriptions for statins and courses of chemotherapy for colorectal cancer, hospital admissions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And COVID has like woken us all up, I think, to just how poor our underlying health is how so much of that is driven by the standard Western diet. And more and more people are becoming aware of the need to switch to a healthier, more vegetarian, more vegan approach to food. So what I want to ask you is, you've, you've said that there's so many uh, reports and news articles, and it's, it's really difficult to navigate. Um, keto, low carb, high carb, grains are bad, you know. How how do you navigate this, and how would you encourage actually that your patients to navigate through this? So when I'm sitting with patients and click, I mean, first of all, you've got to bear in mind, right, that the baseline diet in countries like the U.S. and the U.K. and Ireland has not been determined by human health. It's been determined by commercial interests. Yeah. So so yeah. the food that we eat now, which is predominantly highly processed, shelf stable cheap to produce, expensive to buy, well, relatively expensive to buy compared to the cost of producing it. So high profit margin food, mm-hmm. junk food. Okay. Yep. Commercial interests mean that we now consume more meat, more eggs, and more dairy than ever before in the history of humanity. In the US, they consume an average adult male consumes, I think about 110 kilograms of meat per year. In the UK, the average um, adult male consumes about 85 kilograms of meat per year. Now, this dietary approach, the standard Western approach, has nothing to do with human health. And I would argue it also has very little to do with human taste. It's just what we've been sold. It's what we've been miseducated or just not educated at all. It's what's been presented to us as how we should eat. So in the countries where we eat like that, we have the highest rates of heart disease, colorectal cancer, type 2, di- type 2 diabetes, shorter life expectancies. And we know from the Global Burden of Disease study published late last year that in these countries, these high-income countries, the next generation, so our kids, are likely to have shorter lives yeah, and they're likely crazy. to spend more time in hospital. And they're likely to have more chronic disease than we've had or our grandparents have had. And that is largely being driven by the, by the continued uh, fact that we are eating more and more meat. Meat consumption is, I just described, 120 kilos per person in the US. It's still going up. It's it hasn't stopped. It? So it's, it's the commercial interests want to sell us this stuff. It's got nothing to do with health. In my clinic, I speak to people, I will, I mean, I work at an NHS clinic. I, I see many patients in my, I guess, in my private clinic who seek me out because they know about my book and my advocacy and they eat a plant-based diet themselves. And they're, they've come to me and the team of dietitians who work with me um, to kind of, you know, just to help and just work with them, et cetera. But most of the patients I see are in my NHS clinic and they usually don't know that I've written a book or that I, I care about the food that my patients eat. And because they're living in this food culture, we generally have to start very gently and you have to meet people where they are. I know that doctors and other practitioners have limited time to talk to people about food. So I start the conversation really, really gently. How many pieces of fruit do you eat every day? How many servings of whole grains do you eat every day? And so, sorry, fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. So how many servings of pieces of fruit, servings of vegetables, and servings of whole grains do you eat every day? Just three simple questions. And it's often the fact that in this food culture, Linda, and because we've not ever been educated on healthy eating, the answers that I will get to that question will all often, usually, almost always give us enough to work with in that first consultation. Because sadly, people will often say, 
you know, I don't really eat fruit. I have it at the weekends, maybe, or sometimes I'll have an apple. When it comes to vegetables, they'll often say, I have vegetables every Sunday with my roast. <laughs> Proudly. I have had, okay. do I have to eat vegetables every day, not just on Sunday? Exactly. And when I ask them about whole grains, unfortunately, the, the response from many people is a blank look because they don't really know what a whole grain is. Mm. And that's not their fault. They've just, no one's ever told them. Mm. So often people will say, oh, I like that bread with the seeds on top. Is that a whole grain? And it, it's very, very basic. But if you if you take those very simple starting points and help people to make some simple changes and point them towards the NHS Eat Well Guide or the Canadian Healthy Eating Guidelines or the uh, PCRM Power Plate or any of the amazing resources we have at the homepage of plantbasedhealthprofessionals.uk um, or even now my own book, which is great. This is saving me so much time at clinic. I can just point people <laughs> in that direction. There you go. I can yeah, that's it. I can help people to start to correct the number one five, the number one dietary deficiency that is a unifying dietary deficiency, which is incredibly common in high income countries, and that is fiber deficiency. Mm. We still know we mentioned Dr. Dennis Burkett earlier, 53 years ago, he published his first article on the medical benefits of consuming more fiber, recommending that we aim for 50 grams of fiber per day. In a, you know, when he wrote that, the word fiber wasn't in most medical textbooks. Here we are 53 years later and still in high income countries, a fiber deficient diet is the norm. Most individuals are consuming 15 grams of fiber per day. The, the, the minimum really should be regarded as about 50 grams of fiber per day. So I guess, you know, in terms of starting those conversations with, with people, you really, you know, I don't just meet patients. You don't want to just meet people and say, oh, you're, you're having a standard British diet. You have eggs for breakfast. You have, you know, a ham sandwich for lunch. And then in the evening you have, you know, white rice and you reheat some chicken tikka. And you go, well, look, you've got it all wrong. Go plant-based. You know, <laughs> you need to meet people where they are. It, it needs to be achievable. It's Often, adding the good stuff, isn't it? It's getting, adding the good stuff and that kind of crowds out the bad stuff eventually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But then often when they come to the next appointment and they've made the simple changes that you, you suggested and they've looked at the resources that you pointed them to, in my experience, the next time you meet that patient... They're smiling, they're healthier, they've enjoyed it. They've got their partner with them who's supporting them and is also enjoying the benefits. I mean, I talk in the book about people in my clinic, the plant-based success stories to inspire people. And these patients come out and they go, yeah, I did the thing that you said with the fiber and the whole grains, my blood sugar control is better. I've lost weight without even trying. I'm really enjoying the food. I've been afraid of carbohydrates for years because I believed all this low carb yeah. nonsense. My doctor can't believe that my cholesterol is down 15%. So, you know, tell me more, tell me more. And it's, that's been the thing for me as a, as a doctor and as a person who is trying to help people to get healthier is to have people coming back to me just a few months later and with such positive results. And also, if you just prescribe a person a pill, and don't get me wrong, I write tons of prescriptions. I'm still a standard doctor. I believe in standard medications for the most part. But if you just write someone a prescription and give them a pill and send them home, you haven't given them any role in improving their own health. You've just given them a passive solution, which is outside of their control, and they're worried about side effects. If you give someone the ability to improve their own health by just examining the food they put on their plate three times a day, you're empowering them and you're bringing them on board. And now you're really working as a team. And that's when you really start to see results. I mean, this is, it's wonderful. You're really getting people to take ownership of their own health. And I think that's what's important is that people think that I just want to have a pill so I know that I don't have to do anything about it. You know, give me a pill because I think part of it also has to do with the individual sitting on the other side if they don't want to have to work that hard. So give me a pill and then I can get on with my life. And I have 
relatives that are that way. They just say, let's do it this way. Anyway. Although people say that a lot, Deb, I think those people are in the minority in my experience. I I think the people who, I think when you, you know, when you start that conversation, and as I said earlier, well, look, I'm a, a gut health doctor, okay? So my patients generally have digestive problems. So they've already made the connection with food. But when you start talking to patients about food and the difference it can make to their health, I think people respond to that really, really positively. Really? It's, it's the patients who say to me, look, I don't want to do all that. Just give me the pill. I'm not doing any, I'm not making any changes. Those are few and far between in my experience, because when you start, start those conversations, it's like patients think this is the conversation I've been wishing my doctor had with me 10 years ago. Yes. Thank God someone's talking about it. And in the UK right now, doctors will often talk to their patients about their alcohol use, whether or not they're exercising, whether or not they use illicit drugs. We know those things aren't good for you. But the fact is in the UK right now, the food that we eat is responsible for more disease and disability than any of those three things. So if you're a GP or a practice nurse or a practitioner, and it's part of your job to ask people about their alcohol intake, their cigarette use, and their illicit drug use, you are missing a trick. Yeah. If you want your patients to be even healthier, you've got to start asking them about food. I also think that lots of people see food or changing their diet as weight loss or um, gym, you know, building muscle, but they don't really think about food. So that there's this massive industry of weight loss which is not healthy and we know that it's not healthy so actually seeing a doctor who says no we are doing this to improve your health is is that's quite refreshing and i don't think people are used to that and the word diet has been co-opted mm. um, by as you just said the diet industry mm. i mean the in you know in the very opening page of my book and um as luck would have it, I have a copy right here. <laughs> but it, you know, in, in the very, very opening page of my book, um, so the first couple of words, diet, the food that a person or animal regularly eats, Collins mm. English Dictionary. That's what diet is. It's not mm. something you do for three weeks or four weeks or, or a week. It's not a cleanse. It's not good. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to fix anything. Mm. Um, if you're going into this kind of short-term approach, the diet industry has turned the word diet into something about restriction. Yeah. And it should be about your daily habit. In fact, the original meaning of diet, uh, diet, dieta, was your daily habit. It, it, it didn't even have anything to do with food. So this should be something that becomes a regular event for you, that you are putting meals, you put food in front of yourself probably three times a day. Most people do. And you've got to be, when you're putting that food in front of your plate, you've got to be eating more plants, more unprocessed foods. And that's, like I said, that's why every single recipe in the book is just made with whole plants. And, you know, people often worry about dietary deficiencies, okay? And, and this is, we already talked about fiber deficiency. But look, scientists know what a healthy diet is. The nutritional science is very clear. The medical science is very clear. There are certain foods that are characteristic of healthy populations who have longer lives, less cancer, less cardiovascular disease, less type 2 diabetes, healthier populations who have longer, healthier, happier lives. And those foods are fruits and vegetables and whole grains and beans and legumes and nuts and seeds and maybe a little bit of plant-based oil like extra virgin olive oil. We know that. So we have different dietary scores, like you know the Mediterranean diet score or the healthy eating index or the alternate healthy eating index. So if you want to know how healthy a population's food intakes are, we have the validated tools that allow us to do that. Mm-hmm. And if you go and you do that, if you get a whole bunch of people in, the, in, in countries like the UK or Germany or Australia or the US, and you validate and you look at their dietary indices, and then you ask them, are you a meat eater, a vegetarian, or a vegan? The vegans are far more likely to have really healthy dietary intakes and are far more likely to make the grade when it comes to a healthy Mediterranean diet or or any sort of healthy diet. Because if you're only eating plants, 
you are consuming and you are correcting most of the major dietary deficiencies that drive disease in high-income countries. You're eating more folate. We talked about fiber, vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, thiamine, riboflavin, healthy oils, copper, magnesium. You are consuming more of those foods. So you are going to be healthier. We saw a study published just a few weeks ago here in the UK. Because people, I mean, we're sitting in the UK right now, okay? So I, I presume a lot of your listeners and viewers will also be in the UK. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the UK Biobank is operated out of Oxford. They have just published health outcomes in half a million adults in the UK, followed for, I think, eight to nine years. That is one eightieth of the adult population of the UK. This is huge, huge data out of the UK. And they were looking at the impact of eating meat or not eating meat, particularly red meat, but also poultry on health in the UK. Now, using, they collected all the data on people's exercise, body weight, uh, cholesterol, smoking, alcohol use, level of education, employment, marital status, all these other variables that we know can affect human health, but also their dietary intakes. And no matter, and, and excuse me, they also, what they were looking at was the top 25 conditions that are likely to land you in hospital. Okay, so heart attack. Uh, peptic ulcer disease, pneumonia, diverticular disease, gallbladder problems. And in 24 of the 25 conditions, predominantly driven by heart disease and type 2 diabetes, but in 24 of the 25 conditions, people who ate meat, red meat or poultry, either saw no health benefit or an increased risk of health problems. Hmm. In 24 of 25 conditions, eating meat poultry or red meat or processed red meat had no health benefits. It did not make anybody healthier. It just made people less healthy. And the amounts of meat that you needed to consume to see that, were, were, you know, the, the negative health effects were went up with the more meat you were consuming. And you just needed to be consuming, I think it was 50 to 70 grams of red meat per day to start to see those negative health impacts. And just 30 grams of poultry per day which is like a tiny piece of chicken. And we live in a country right now where most people, I would think, are consuming more chicken than that. And surprise, surprise, we are living in a country where heart disease and type 2 diabetes and colorectal cancer and Crohn's disease and all these conditions are incredibly common. Obesity is becoming the norm. And in that UK population, 500,000 UK adults, the people who don't eat meat, and don't eat poultry are healthier regardless of their income, alcohol, cigarettes, exercise, body size. So that the science is becoming compelling. It is. It is. Linda, do you want to jump in and ask some questions? About- yeah, I actually wanted to talk about the um, growth of vegan food because there is so much, but there's also so much junk vegan food from Greg's sausage roll and all those things. So that that's definitely hindering this sort of process. Um, how do we get around that? Well, the, the first thing I would say is, is again, I would, because I get asked this a lot, okay? Yeah. But again, I would have to preface it by pushing back against the concept that a vegan diet is unhealthy because often that assumption is baked into that question. Mm. So I think we've dealt with that, okay? But right now in the UK, a lot of our health problems, and the same in Ireland, the US, and other high-income countries, is the fact that about 50 to 60% of calories are come from highly processed junk foods. Mm. Instead of eating apples, people are having apple Pop-Tarts. Yeah. yeah. And that sounds flippant, but it's true. In recent years, I talked earlier about how the health benefits of plant-based eating have entered the mainstream. They really have entered the mainstream. I mean, the title of my book is The Plant-Based Diet Revolution. But of course, the revolution's already on, right? Yeah. I, just want, yeah. I just want more people yeah. to join. Yeah. But I, I am worried a little bit about the fact that somehow supermarkets are interpreting plant-based as a license to put health claims on boxes of Oreos and chocolate bars and, you know, packets of sweets. 
because look, it, it depends on your goals. I mean, if you are eliminating animal products and dairy from your diet because you are um, worried about the climate change implications of animal agriculture, those foods tick the box. Absolutely. If you're worried about um, animal cruelty and animal welfare, tick the box completely. If you are worried about the fact that the animal um, agriculture or animal industry is very likely to be the source of our next zoonotic pandemic, and you want to do your bit to prevent that, you've ticked the box. But if you are doing it for your personal health or the health of your family, then really those things should be treats. They should be very, they, I mean, look, nobody's perfect. I, I was recently speaking to this. There's no such thing as perfection. You know, the goal here is about a healthier and a happier life. Okay. Mm -hmm. And happy is just as important. But really, we can't kid ourselves. You know, a vegan donut is still a donut. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. maybe an occasional treat and you can chomp into that donut knowing that you've ticked all those other boxes that we've just discussed and maybe you're cutting loose for the day but but really these things should be um uh, you know don't really have a place in a, in a in a healthy diet and should really be just occasional uh, occasionally consumed so would you say your approach is 80 20 or 90 10 what what do you go well 80 20 okay so we eat 21 meals a week okay so if you want to be 95 percent healthy then 20 of those need to be healthy. Mm. If you want to be 90% healthy, 19 of them need to be healthy. <laughs> so you can say you can say 90, 10 or 80, 20, yeah. but then just have a little sit down and think about what that actually looks like in your week. And you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. Very good. That's very good input. I like that. I like that. So, uh, gosh, my man, we don't have a lot of time and I'm just thinking was the most effective use of the time. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your reason for your research that you did within the NHS. I think that would be nice, but we can decide what's best. I think there's also that discussion of the argument between keto and plant-based. And there's, you know, there are lots of discussions about that. And of course, Linda and I are in sync with your thinking of whole food plant-based is the root. And I guess those are the, the two most important things well, that I'm thinking should we, about. Should we talk about keto a little bit then? And, that would be great. You know, uh, keto, carnivore, these approaches to food. First of all, if you look at people who are recommending this, this mythical sort of made-up paleo diet, um, whereas I recommend a whole food plant-based diet, first of all, why don't we recognize the commonalities, Okay. No junk food, lots of plants. Mm -hmm. That's that's huge. Okay, so both the the paleo folk and the whole food plant based folk say the same thing. And all that stuff we just said about junk food, we agree on everything there. Yeah. Okay, we also both say no dairy. So we agree on that. So there's so much that we agree with. The thing that makes me concerned is that people who are recommending this mythical paleo diet, which was essentially made up about 20 years ago don't seem to recognize that by incorporating meat in their diet every day, they're doing themselves harm. Because when you get your calories from meat, you're getting pro-inflammatory heme iron, mm. you're cooking that muscle and fat, you're generating chemicals like PAHs and HCAs, which are pro-inflammatory, pro-oxidative and carcinogenic. You are increasing your consumption of saturated fat, which increases your body's production of cholesterol. It also increases your production of secondary bile acids, which are linked to colorectal cancer. You're also substantially increasing your consumption of carnitine and choline, which induces negative changes in your gut microbiome, producing a substance called trimethylamine, which your body turns into TMAO, which is a potent driver, we believe, of atherosclerosis and heart disease. So for some reason, the paleo folks discount all of that evidence and they don't, you know, consider it useful. But it's, it is useful. <laughs> it's important to acknowledge that. One of, the, one of the things that we see a lot about low carb, high fat diets, which would be the paleo diet, and even among health professionals in the UK, is that there's a lot of enthusiasm for this approach to eating and telling people to cut all their carbs and eat more meat and eat lower glycemic index foods. But you know, there was a nice uh, paper published in 2019 
looking at the rate at rates of type 2 diabetes among the British population. And they were specifically looking at this low carb, high fat thing. So this data from the UK National Dietary and Nutrition Survey um, looked at individuals in the UK, I think it was like over 3,000 adults, and they developed a score, the low carb, high fat score. So they looked at their dietary index, and then you were given a score for how low carb, high fat your diet is. And the more low carb, high fat your diet is, and the lower your carbohydrate intake was, the higher your chances of developing type 2 diabetes. And the higher your chances of having an elevated HbA1c, pre-diabetes. So it's true that if you take an individual and stop them from eating apples and oranges and all carbohydrates, their blood sugars will level out. But their insulin resistance will worsen. And after four or five weeks, if they crack and they eat an apple, their blood sugars are going to spike because they've become more insulin resistant. And we know, I mean, the, we know, I mean, uh, the wealth of the epidemiological data shows us that if you eat a lot of plant-derived protein and fat intake from vegetables, nuts, butters, whole grain breads, and all that, you are more likely to be alive in 25 years. <laughs> if you consume a low-carbohydrate diet and you're favoring animal-derived protein and fat sources from lamb and beef and pork and chicken, you are less likely to be alive in 25 years. We saw data out of Harvard um, published about three or four years ago, 15 thousand adults followed for a quarter of a century. And based on the outcomes, they predicted that the average 50-year-old who opts for a low-carb, higher animal protein-style diet would reduce their life expectancy by four years. So sure, you can lose weight. Sure, you can get some you know, blood sugar control as long as you don't eat any carbohydrates, which are healthy food anyway. But long-term, it is just not a recipe for good health. Mm. It's nice to hear you talk more about the science of that and, and address those things because Linda and I are very much on the same side with you, the thinking with that as well. But that leads me to some of your questions about that you had, Linda, about cancer. And do you want to, to address some of those things about grains and cancer when we're getting into the whole foods? Do you, do you want to talk about yeah. that? I, I do see a lot of, uh, I support lots of clients uh, who have cancer and of course, that sort of the most people who advise, you know, on how to eat, um, is it, it's all going down keto. It's all going down low carb. But I know that, for example, with colorectal cancer, whole grains are the food that is the most protective. So I just wanted you to clarify that a bit for us. Yeah, there, there's so much um, misinformation out there about whole grains. Mm. So whole grains aren't simple sugars or, you know, we're not talking about cans of Coca-Cola or candy floss here. We're talking about whole grains. We're talking about, you know, whole grain rice, whole grain bread, quinoa, buckwheat, oats, these foods, right? When, you know, a few years ago, there was a huge scientific review of the evidence on whole grain consumption and human health. The more whole grains you eat, the healthier you are. That's what the science tells us. Whole grain consumption protects us. And many of these benefits are mediated through the nutrients contained in whole grains, but also the beneficial effects they have on the human gut microbiome. Whole grain consumption reduces your risk of heart disease, cancer, uh, respiratory disease, infectious disease, type 2 diabetes, and reduced your risk essentially of dying of any disease during a long period of follow-up in a medical study. And it's not just about whole grain breads and high fiber breakfast cereals. It's about barley and brown rice and millet and oats and frika. Popcorn is actually a whole grain. Uh, porridge is a whole grain. These are healthy foods, and these foods feature prominently in every national dietary guideline in the world. Mm. Now, I have issues with some of the dietary guidelines, particularly the US dietary guidelines, and the vested interests that the recommendations reflect. However, 
there's no arguing with the science behind whole grains. We talked earlier about a healthy whole food plant-based diet and how the American Cancer Society has you know, endorsed this as a healthy approach to food. Approach, an approach that helps to reduce your risk of various cancers. And look, we know that people who eat a whole food plant-based diet or vegans or a healthy vegetarian diet are at substantially lower risk of colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, endometrial cancer. Okay. But they did a study a few years ago where they looked at individuals just specifically around cancer. And this is a very specific case, but they looked at individuals with um, relatively advanced colon cancer, something that's very close to my practice and my personal life as it happens in my family, colorectal cancer, an incredibly common cancer in high income countries, very rare in countries where they eat a lot of fiber, but very common in Ireland, the UK, the US, et cetera. And they took individuals who'd been diagnosed with stage three colorectal cancer, and they asked them to take part and to embrace the American Cancer Society healthy diet and lifestyle guidelines, which include eating lots of whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and legumes. And in the and then they looked at their outcomes over five years. In cancer, we often talk about the five-year survival. And the five-year survival among the individuals who didn't um, embrace the healthy diet and lifestyle guidelines for whatever reason, and you know they could have had very real reasons for doing that. But after five years, the five-year survival was 62%, which is about what you would expect based on the literature. But for the individuals who embraced the healthy diet and lifestyle guidelines, including increasing their consumption of whole grains, the five-year survival was 82%. So so there there is, even when one has been diagnosed with cancer, um, there are benefits to be had by eating a healthier diet, which includes whole grains. But look, good on you for working with people who've been diagnosed with a cancer. That's a very, very difficult time for people. Very, you know, and people have a lot going on in their lives when they've just been diagnosed with a cancer. Um, But if that person has the ability or the wherewithal um, to embrace a healthier diet and lifestyle, even at that difficult time, um, it can often be to their benefit. Yeah, and, and it very much is. I, I love Dr. Ornish's study on prostate cancer. I don't know if you've seen that one. Although that that's absolutely an incredible piece of research. Well, dairy consumption, particularly whole milk consumption and prostate cancer, the science there is uh, pretty compelling. Yeah. Linda's talking down her, her work with people who have cancer. She does a lot of work in helping people who've had a cancer diagnosis or going through treatment. She is really very switched on at at her nutritional therapy and her practice in in helping people live a happier and healthier life when they've had that diagnosis. So don't let her just kind of fling that out. Gloss over that. (laughs) That incredible work. Yeah, yeah, she is. She's doing a lot of work. Uh, But I, I was actually going to ask you about the age of um, when people are diagnosed with colorectal cancer, it seems to be going down quite quite a lot. We see younger and younger people being diagnosed. No, you're absolutely correct. So colorectal cancer is incredibly common in countries where we eat a standard Western diet and rates increased throughout the 20th century, particularly um, in the US and then later in Europe. Um, the reasons for that very much seem to be those increases seem to be driven by our dietary intakes. Right now in the UK, it's our fourth leading cancer diagnosis and our second leading cause of cancer death, affecting one in 15 men, one in 18 women in their lifetime. In the US, we see 150,000 cases per year. In countries like the US and the UK, where it's become very common to have colon cancer, over the last 15 to 20 years, we've implemented very effective colorectal cancer screening programs, which have been targeting initially people who aged over 75, then aged over 55. And that has helped us to reduce the prevalence of colorectal cancer in those age groups. But right now in 2020, just as we're seeing colorectal cancer rates increase in lower income countries who are now embracing the standard Western diet around the world. And we're seeing a global surge in rates of colorectal cancer in countries like the US where colorectal cancer has been, screening has been in place for older age groups. We, are see, we have seen you know, year on year for the last few decades, we've seen increases in younger people. In the United States right now, one in eight cases of colorectal cancer are diagnosed in individuals under the age of 55. 
And this isn't theoretical. Um, within our practice, myself and my gastroenterology colleagues, we are seeing these cases. You know, I, I started practicing as a gastroenterologist as a consultant 10 years ago. And even in those 10 years, I've seen, I've recognized, we all recognize that we are seeing cancers in younger people. Last year, of course, in the US, we saw the, uh, the actor Chadwick Boseman Mm. diagnosed with stage three colorectal cancer at the age of 39. It's becoming more common. Mm. So the, in the US, they just reduced the screening age to 45 from 55. I don't know what, how, how young, how, uh, what age we'll need to start screening in 10 years. Maybe we'll be screening people for colorectal cancer in their late 20s in 10 years' time. Because as we continue to embrace the standard Western diet, those rates are going to go up. Only 5 to 10% of cases of colorectal cancer are due to genetic syndromes. The rest are sporadic or due to other factors. Um, dietary intakes, alcohol, cigarettes, obesity are all very contributory. And do you think that one of the drivers is actually we see a lot more children who are overweight and obese? So that that are, that's driving the cancer diagnosis much earlier well it, it, it's true um you know what if we're carrying extra body weight um that body weight is an organ it's not just a yeah. uh, a layer it's metabolically active it's pro-inflammatory and we know that you know uh, diet is incredibly important okay meat intake is really important red meat in particular processed red meat bacon sausages we've known that these are carcinogenic for a decade now, people are still giving them to their kids to eat and setting them up for disease later in life. We all make mistakes in the food that we give to our kids, okay? And it's very, very difficult to get children to eat the food you'd like them to eat, no matter what your dietary approach. Yeah. Kids will find their own way. But giving bacon and sausages to our kids, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. You're just setting them up for failure in their, during their adult life. But whatever your dietary approach, um, and whatever about your other factors, unfortunately, um, your body mass index, the higher it is, is an independent risk also for developing colorectal cancer. Wow. Um, right. Okay. I'm just conscious of the time. It's four o'clock and I know we're, we're going to need to go or let you go. Do you, I mean, loads of questions always and things to, that I could go on and, and want to torture you forever and ever in a day, um, <laughs> the American in me. But do you have any, you know, two things. One is how do you take care of yourself? If you don't mind just letting us know, what do you do to take care of yourself? Cause you've written a book, very active. You're, I mean, you're always on the go. So that's one thing I think would be nice to know. And do you have any sort of key messages or words of wisdom for healthcare practitioners? Well, I eat a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet. <laughs> when I'm putting my meals together, I'm not, I'm not worrying about where's the protein because all plants contain protein. When I put my meals together, I'm thinking about taste, how satisfying the food is going to be, but I'm also thinking about where are the whole grains, where are the legumes, where are the spices? Because these, and you know, in the, and the other thing I would, I would say in, on that topic, of course, Debs, is just as we're winding up the interview, we have talked about a lot of diseases for the last hour. Mm. We've talked about a lot of science for the last hour. But of course, the, the, we should end on an optimistic note because the benefits of a healthier diet and lifestyle and a plant-powered diet, which will add eight to 10 years of health to your life expectancy, are genuinely available to everybody. So all that depressing stuff we just talked about, it is not no. inevitable. No, no, I agree. It's not inevitable. It, it doesn't have to be like this. The solutions are there. So, so, so be hopeful when you hear about all this science. It's, it's actually very positive because we can make those changes. We have the opportunity to take those things on board. And I don't mean to be a downer. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. earlier on, I gave our supermarket friends a bit of a hard time. But of course, the supermarkets also contain the fruits and the vegetables and the whole grains. I mean, so you've, if you follow me on Instagram, you see the kind of food I eat. Mm -hmm. If you've read the book, you see that you've seen the recipes in there. Mm -hmm. It's Perfect. delicious, familiar, tasty food. But we do almost all of our shopping at Sainsbury's. 
we're not we're not going to the health store to buy this stuff. This stuff is in the this high street supermarkets. It's available to everyone. So I I eat uh, healthy food. I try to go to bed early. I try to go to bed by nine or nine thirty p.m. I don't drink alcohol. I, I gave that up years ago. I think as a doctor and a gastroenterologist, we see a lot of the difficulties that alcohol leads to. So I see all the bad stuff. So that puts you off it, I guess, over over a period of time. Spend time with my family. Spend time with friends when I can. And I try not to stress about things too much. And I try to smile more. Being a doctor can be a very stressful job. You find yourself in very, very stressful situations. Very difficult, very sad, very challenging situations, very commonly. But um, I think, I'm pretty sure if you ask any of my colleagues, I do tend to smile a lot at work because I'm always trying to remember. And I was saying this to a colleague the other day as we were sitting in the waiting room, waiting for our, both of us waiting for our um, second COVID jab, had mine yesterday. Um, As we were sitting there and we were reflecting, and this is someone I work with a lot. She's a palliative care consultant. We talked about cancer earlier. We share a lot of patients in 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 that um, scenario. And we both talked about the challenges that we faced professionally, that our patients have faced, that our health services have faced, that our families have faced in the last year. And I kind of ended the conversation by saying, but you know, it could be worse. <laughs> so you, I love it. I can see. I, I need to say that if anybody still thinks that plant-based food is boring, you know, they need to get your book. As oh, that. thank you. Well, sticky tofu and kimchi bowl and miso aubergines. I mean, yeah, yeah. How can you go wrong with that? Absolutely. And don't forget the um, the barley and Guinness stew with the herby dumplings and <laughs> all that. You know, it's just, um, yeah, I, I think people will be surprised when they open the book at just how familiar the food is. And, and colourful. You know, it's not beige, it's colourful. And that we eat with our eyes. And when you see colour, you know, you actually feel that that food is good for you. Absolutely. When we were, um, so a little bit behind the curtain, when we were um, initially um, speaking to publishers over a year and a half ago, um, I was very pleased that one of the publishers who was interested in the book was Yellow Kite Books, uh, who previously published the Delicious the Yellow Cookbooks, and have a great track record on publishing scientific books as well. Um, So it was the perfect publishers for us, I think, because they did a great job of presenting both the science, but more importantly, right, it's all about the food great job of presenting the food and we eat with our eyes exactly and that's how you attract people in you're not going to attract people in by beating them over the head with all these statistics that we've just been that i've just been uh, depressing you all with for the last hour you attract people in by just giving them a really nice recipe or when we're allowed cooking something for them and inviting them over to share it fabulous but also with so much energy and excitement about foods and health and well-being. And, and particularly with the past year, I'm sure it hasn't been the easiest for you either. But it's wonderful to see that you're always full of enthusiasm about helping people stay well. And I think it's really great. So I guess for now, we should leave it there. And just say thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I really do. Oh, thank you, Devin. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, folks, that's all for today. I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in to our conversation with Alan. If you would like to find out more details about Alan, or if you would like to order his book, The Plant-Based Diet Revolution, I'll be sure and provide links in the show notes so you can follow him or get in touch with him or buy his book. Now then, as usual, I'd like to ask you to do a few other things. One of them is, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to my podcast or leave me a review if you haven't, or share this with other people you feel might find them of benefit. I'd also like to talk to you about that Bellican. You got it. You got to bounce soft to feel good. What can I say except 
that the research on the benefits of rebounding continues to grow. So if you'd like to find out more details about this wonderful product and this company that I am so pleased to be affiliated with, please send me an email or there is also a link in the show notes so you can snoop around on your own. I'll also be sure and provide a link so you can get in touch with Linda Sims if you would like to do so. But for now, I'd like to say thank you again for listening in and here's wishing you and yours the very best of health. Bye for now. Bye.